listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. After I'd been studying for some time, I'd I'd gotten into the process of uh, meditation. I was working pretty steadily with the daily practice, and I was spending uh, uh, lots of time and lots of money going on retreats and so forth, working with various various teachers. And I was in a place where, I, I guess the best way I can describe it is I thought I had I thought I was I was getting it, if that makes sense. I thought that you know, oh yeah, this is eh, I get it. Um, of course, for those of you who know anything about this stuff, the whole getting it is exactly the wrong direction. Um, so surprise to me. Uh, anyway, this uh, this person was at this. Um, uh, Sunday sitting that I was going to, and I was so amazed. I was so amazed that this guy shows up. I hadn't really, I wasn't familiar with him, and I immediately kind of went into this snooty space of, well, that's, <laughs> he's not one of the people that I will, t- I tend to listen to, so, you know, whatever. It was, <laughs> it's great, great, you know, spiritual snobbery was going on. Um, I'm embarrassed to say, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, he gets up and he starts talking about how his teacher, Suzuki Roshi, uh, used to say this line to him all the time. The most important thing is figuring out what the most important thing is. Which I think is just a great line. And then he went on to say, so consider for yourselves, what is the most important thing? What is the most important thing? What do you really want? Really. What do you really want? And uh, at the time, I was, uh, I, I was in between girlfriends. And what I really wanted was, uh, I, I think I, I turned it, because I, I remember sitting and thinking, I want a soulmate. That's what I want. I want a soulmate and a Bugatti or Ferrari. What? Both. <laughs> I want a, want a Because I don't want a Ferrari. But uh, at that point, I probably did. So anyway, uh, then, then the killer was, he said, now, let's pretend I could give you whatever it is that you really want. Let's pretend. Let's pretend I could give you. So I'm thinking, oh, right, soulmate, Ferrari, set. And then his next question kicked my ass. He said, great, great. Now what will that bring you? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what that will bring me. Well, maybe it will bring me peace. You know, if I've got a soulmate, if I've got somebody to share this life with, 
maybe I'll, I'll find that there's a deeper piece. If I have a Ferrari, if that soulmate doesn't work out, I'll clearly attract another one because soulmates are attracted to Ferraris, right? <laughs> you can see my level of maturity back then. Uh, <laughs> what I, what, then what I started to recognize is what I thought that the soulmate was going to bring me was peace. It was a feeling of completion. Yet, what I really wanted was not the soulmate. If what I really wanted was completion, then I should at least say that. I should at least come to terms with what it is that I really wanted. What I really wanted was peace. Man, now that puts everything on a whole different... Uh, it, it just That really just shook my world. It, I, it's like, oh, well, if I really, really want peace, then, then that really has nothing to do with something out there, be it a, a new and improved girlfriend 2.0 or a Ferrari. Huh. It's not out there. And then it was like, you know, the bells went off. And, it's like, it's not out there. What do you really want? I'm asking you now. What do you really want? And what will it bring you? Just think about that. Because if what you want is peace, it's waiting. Just get out of the way. Of course, if you want a soulmate in a Ferrari, I, I just have no words to help you. I, <laughs> I failed so miserably in the Ferrari regard, but man, I, I seem to have scored pretty well on the whole soulmate deal. Uh, that took a lot of trial and error and pain and all sorts of other stuff, but uh, uh, I just think it's such a neat thing to think about now, especially as these winter months show us simultaneously a certain barrenness, but at the same time, a certain clarity. If you're out at all today, you could recognize that there is a certain chill, but also this amazing clarity. Let that be reflected internally and let it take itself into your stillness practice tonight. As you sit still, what do you really want? Really? What do you really want? If you want that peace, get out of the way. Let, let it happen. Just let it happen. Drop all the stuff you don't need. For those of you wondering how the hell do you drop all the stuff, uh, I think there are a couple of shortcuts that I wanted to share with you. Um, first of all, I think it's very helpful and I've said this a lot, I'm gonna, it's going to sound like I'm repeating myself, but it's very helpful to find uh, a teacher. It doesn't have to be me. Find a teacher. Find somebody that you can, that you trust, that you know that they are grounded in some type of, I always think it's, it's, it's good if they've been grounded at least or trained at least in some type of tradition. I think that's important. I think the second is find a teaching that corresponds 
with what you sense to be true. Okay, find a teaching. Maybe it's very kind of, uh, uh, how should I say, traditional in its approach. Maybe it's traditional Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or atheism. Doesn't matter. It might be real kind of, it might be fundamental. It might be a little bit more open. What we're doing here, obviously, is it's, we, we, we call it Zen inspired, but what does that really mean? Well, it, I'm, I don't know. Actually, if somebody finds that one out, let the marketing group know because that would save us a lot of angst. <laughs> but so we have all these variations on, on teaching. But let the teaching, let it be something that will push you. The practice isn't about feeling good, it's about becoming more and more and more conscious. Thirdly, find a group of like-minded spiritual friends. And when I say like-minded, they do not have to be people that you hang with, but they do have to be people that reflect what's true within you. Okay? Those three things are going to help. And then I would say one other thing that I found really helpful in relationship to the teacher. Um, I spent a lot of time sitting one-on-one -on -one with lots of teachers. I found that to be very, very helpful. Even when I didn't have a question, I would go in and I would sit with them. In the Zen tradition, we call it dokusan. And I would go in and I would sit with them and I would just kind of let the question happen and then see where that would take us. And as a result, what it did is it allowed for the teachers to kind of keep, keep me on the path. And the further along the path I got, the more I realized that the teachers themselves, the best ones, were the ones that were on the path themselves backing up. They were on the path backing up, keeping me and the rest of the, uh, the curious on the right, you know, keeping us, keeping us on the path. Um, so we actually, uh, we do dokus on here. And I will meet, I'll be meeting with two people tonight. I know Phil, I'll be meeting with you. And then there was one other, you'll be, you'll be first and then Phil will be second. While everybody else is sitting, I'll meet with people in the, uh, uh, in the, in the other room. But if that's something that you're into, uh, you feel the, uh, compelled, um, please, by all means, go on to infinitesmile.org. And there's a little thing that says, you know, click here for Dokusan. I've had people ask me the uh, following questions. Like, well, so how does a Buddha, how would a Buddha behave? What would, what would Buddha do? <laughs> what would Buddha do? Um, and the answer, <laughs> the answer to that is pretty much the same thing that Jesus would do. Um, I'm only partially kidding there. Because in awakening, we find that what an awakened being will do, they will always come at the world or at a situation from a place of deep, total, complete generosity. And I've said before, included in that generosity, in that mix of generosity, it's not exclusionary at all, meaning it's not I am being generous to them. It is just generosity to all beings, including you. 
So this is a really remarkable teaching because basically it is the enactment of non-grasping. And grasping is what leads us into suffering. It's when we hang on to something even though we can't hang on to it. We can't make it permanent no matter how much we try, no matter how much care, no matter how much attention we give it, it slips. It slips through our fingertips, just like all things. All things are temporary. So, what would a Buddha do? Well, a Buddha, just like a Christ, would not grasp. It's that simple. And we usually don't align a definition of grasping um, with our lives in very appropriate ways. In other words, we look at grasping as quite simply overt clinging. Well, certainly that's grasping. But there are subtler and subtler and subtler levels of grasping that can really, over time, uh, keep the offering of awakening from us. So think about this. Think about the opinions that you might have. Think about the convictions that you might have that you cling to. And it's not that they're wrong. It's that the clinging to your opinions has the effect of generating suffering within your heart and mind. So what's, an, what's another way, perhaps, of, of dealing with this grasping? Um, especially when most of us spend our time really trying to grasp, you know, I, I've heard this one uh, said a lot, you know, well, I, try to, I, I can't quite grasp what you're saying. It's like, yay, excellent. <laughs> you're learning, you know. That's actually very much, very much what the teaching is about, because what do we try to do so much of the time? We try to grasp stuff intellectually. We try to grasp stuff even physically. We try to hang on to certain feelings. And if a feeling is wrestled from us, <laughs> uh, for instance, if our partner, let's say, um, uh, no longer gives us what we want, we can go from a space of what we always perceive to be infinite love for them to ha, you know, immediately kind of go into to, uh, spiritual combat with them or psychological combat with them. That love is egoic. That's a negotiation more than it is a boundless offering of generosity, which is exactly what Jesus would do. Give a boundless offering of generosity, which is exactly what the Buddha would do. And the reason why the uh, saints and sages of the past might fall into this category of giving these amazing open offerings of generosity is because their perception of the way things are takes on a decidedly open uh, quality. And what do I mean by this? Well, as we begin climbing the... Uh, the metaphor that I use at least, climbing the mountain of spirit, we recognize that at, as the, the higher the altitude, 
the less we can handle carrying all the baggage we've gotten away with carrying for our lifetime. You just cannot, you cannot make it up, you know, you cannot traverse this particular path or get up over that particular uh, rock or, you know, up the cornice or over the cliff's edge or whatever while you're hanging on to stuff that isn't helping you. In fact, everything that you're hanging on to is getting in your way of summiting. So how is it then that we can let go of all this stuff? Well, let's make sure we're really clear about what the stuff is, and then usually we find it to be very simple. Now, this may feel like it's or sound like it's um, uh, really, really heady. I'm going to try not to let it be so, uh, but it's, it, it's at the core of this idea of grasping. So let me just read um, from uh, Chapter 2 of Awaken This Life. As our climb up the mountain of spirit progresses, some things begin to stand out. First of all, we recognize how our small self works to keep its distance from the broader sense of the infinite that we call the big self, so that it can maintain a sense of control. Secondly, the higher we climb, the more we learn that simply watching our small self in action helps us to become aware of its mechanisms of attachment. These mechanisms show themselves as craving and resistance, both of which are simply two faces of the same coin we call grasping. Craving and resistance are both grasps, okay? They're both forms of clinging. Okay, the minute any of us goes after something and we try to control it, we try to fix it. That's a good one, actually. We try to fix it. Uh, we try to heal it. We try to, whatever it is, we're going after it. That is a form of grasping. Now, does this mean we shouldn't offer healing hands to a situation? That's fine. As long as you are not trying to get anything from the offering. I'll say that again. As long as you are not trying to get anything from the offering, then guess what? It's an authentic, true, open expression of generosity. If, on the other hand, you're doing it so that you can get something in return, what are we looking at? We're looking at an egoic negotiation. And that's not really an offering. It's actually a form of very subtle manipulation. Okay? So go on here just for a sec. Buddha's teaching tells us that if we aren't conscious and accepting of the vast, interdependent, temporary, and totally infinite nature of everything in our lives, then our small selves will naturally grasp at things that arise in our experience. All things, ladies and gentlemen, take on this really, really interesting quality. When we look at the things in our life, at the baggage in our life that we're carrying, we start recognizing that there are three qualities to everything in our life. Everything. Number one, every single thing is interdependent. There's no such thing as independence in the ultimate sense. Yes, you have free will. You came to this you know, beautiful meeting of your own accord. Maybe you didn't want to, but you did it anyway because you knew it would be good for you or something like that. Maybe you were desperate to make sure that you could sit still with a group of friends. Whatever the reason, you all came here. 
of your own volition. Except that volition totally depends on the safe ride over. It depends on everybody else obeying traffic laws. It depends on fresh air, clean water, the money to buy gasoline. Everything conspired miraculously to get you here safely. And we're talking about something small. We're just talking about showing up for Monday night. Okay? Everything is interdependent. I depend on you for my very life to take it to an extreme. Think about that. Imagine, you know, let's say, uh, let's say Judy just snaps and she's just so, so angry at me that she, you know, like starts hitting me over the head with something, you know, my black eye, you know, the fact that I don't have a black eye is dependent on her generosity then in that model. Okay, it's a strange model, but you get the idea. <laughs> I mean, all kidding aside, we depend on each other. We depend on the goodwill of other human beings on this planet just to survive. Everything is interdependent. The second quality I touched on there is everything is temporary. No thing is permanent. And you could come around and say, oh, that sounds like an attachment. That's just a story. Okay, fine. Maybe it's just a story. But that story isn't permanent either. Nothing is permanent. If nothing is permanent and everything is temporary, then it can be so wasteful of our energetic impulses and our emotional lives to try to preserve, protect, and defend something in order to make it permanent. Recognizing the ultimate finitude in everything, including ourselves, we will all die. Every relationship we are in, whether it's filial, intimate, or otherwise, will all, they'll all end. Everything is temporary. Nothing lasts. And then the third quality that a truly generous person would recognize, a third quality of reality, is that every single thing at its core is an expression of the infinite. Put another way, that nothing is not holy. Double negative in the sentence I know there, but listen very carefully. I'm choosing the words on purpose. Nothing is not holy. Everything is holy. Everything is spirit, including ourselves, including our loved ones, including our enemies including situations and organizations that we can't stand. It's all part of the cosmic giggle. It's all part of us. From that perspective, the only possible response to any situation that arises 
is a loving, compassionate, open, tender offering that expects nothing in return. Right. Right. So as we climb the summit, as we climb the summit, ultimately, ultimately at the summit, we are completely 100% undefended from the elements. Nothing is required. Literally, nothing is required. Or put another way, it's required that there is nothing at that summit. And what happens then is the I sense that you have or I have or anybody has on the summit, that sense of I, that personhood, that sense of who I am and so forth, dissolves and reconfigures as we come back down the mountain. And guess what we get to put back on our bodies when we start climbing back down the mountain? Clothing. We can start picking up all the baggage we want because we don't hang on to it. We don't even hang on to the clothes. Okay? That doesn't mean there's no intention. It doesn't mean we kind of just check out and become, you know, kind of some zoned out quasi-spiritual couch potato. <laughs> that, you know, that person just, that person, that person has really kind of misunderstood and um, hasn't integrated that raw, naked awareness at the top of the summit, that undefended, totally undefended open space at the summit. Having said that, what helps us get to the summit? Teacher, teaching, and group. Those, those are the shortcuts. And at the, summit, at the summit, guess what we let go of? Teacher, teaching, and group. We see that all three of those things are no longer necessary as externals, they become internalized. We start seeing that the teacher is us, that the teaching is us, that the group is us. And then when we come back down the mountain, we're able to contribute to teacher, teaching, and sangha in a much more expansive, conscious way. I don't know if that really answers your question. I think you had, it's really a good one, Pete. Seriously, I mean, that's a beautiful question. But I mean, because that is the... But what is, what is the... What does the teaching ultimately tell us? Yeah. Lose the jacket. Yeah. And so I think it's really an important step. This is why the ego is so important in this process. There's no way we would get to the, get onto the mountain, let alone get to the top, without the ego wanting it. The miracle is that the ego can't have it. Instead of the ego having awakening, awakening immediately becomes something that is spontaneously shared. Can't be possessed. No down jackets required. Yeah. Wasn't that a Phil Collins album? No? It's a little 80s trivia there for anybody who was alive during 1985. Sorry. But play with that. It's a really interesting thing. You know, what, what, what is it to be totally undefended, so fearless, so 
so literally not there that you are invulnerable because the you isn't really even there. And that's the summit. And that's halfway. Then we come home and reintegrate all of that stuff. The victim is holy. Actually, let me, let me switch gears. What is not holy? Right, so what is not holy? Reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of this great little story of this <laughs> the Zen master goes out into the beautifully manicured garden, right? And just starts taking a leak on one of the Buddha statues. And the, the lead monk goes out there totally alarmed, what? You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Peeing on the holiest of statues. And the Zen master looks at him and says, What is not holy? What is not Buddha? Awakening. <laughs> Awakening through urination, you know. But this is like really very, very true, you know. I mean, it's, it's all holy from the perspective of awakening, from the perspective of a truly generous person. And then the truly generous person acts appropriately and generously in a situation where perhaps a dagger is being thrown. What's the most generous thing you can do when a dagger is, is taken out of, its, out of its sheath and going after somebody is to keep the person from harming and to keep the other person from getting harmed. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Tim. I don't understand. How is evil holy? Evil is a mind creation, an egoic creation of something it resists. And it doesn't mean it's not there. But your evil might be different from mine even though it's probably the same. Let's just, for the sake of the argument, let's assume that your evil is different than mine. It's just like saying, your terrorist is my freedom fighter. It depends, evil depends on a perspective, an egoic perspective, okay? The, tru the truly generous person is actually able to look at that whole interplay with a degree of spaciousness, and they can respond in a generous way to whatever situation is arising, okay? So we begin to look at evil then as something that on the one hand, on the egoic, from the egoic perspective, must exist. Otherwise, ego doesn't have a job. And from the perspective of the big self, evil is just a name given to resistance, an intense resistance to something or someone. So it's it just depends on kind of how we look at it. And the teaching, um, yeah, the, yeah, the teaching suggests that it is our perspective broadens and we can start losing this idea of, of good and evil as a, as a governing force in our life. You know, well, that's good, that's bad. Instead of that dualism, we start to become 
non-dual in our approach and we start seeing it all as spirit. Meaning, it gives us much more, there are all sorts of responses that we could give. We have more choices to make that come from a place of depth as opposed to a place that's contracted and, and, yeah, and bound by our definition, our mental definition of what is good and what is bad. Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's not that... I'm sorry? The analogy. Yeah. Terrorists, freedom fighters. Yeah, yeah, I mean, evil really, it really depends on our perspective. And so when we start moving into a place where the perspective can open, we can then start, quite honestly, uh, going into a, a place that's uh, truly disinterested, truly non-judgmental, truly open, and then we can engage from there. And that might mean making sure that so-and-so doesn't do such-and-such to so-and-so. It might mean that we, are, we defend something but it's coming from a place of non-defense. It's coming from a place of love as opposed to, don't you dare. One's contracted. Another one's totally open. That won't happen. Miraculously, just to add to that, when we're in a space when we don't perceive evil per se, uh, or we don't, we, we're not caught by the war of good and evil, it's very, very easy to be undefended. We're not fighting anything. Yet we're totally participating. We go to, let's say, the protest. But we're not protesting. We're actually advocating something beautiful. We're not at war with war. You were thinking in meditation? It's the only way I could say it. It's the only way, okay, all right. So, so what I was thinking was that I wanted to be a certain way so that a certain thing could happen, sort of along the lines of, you know, if you were to have that soulmate and, right. and yeah. Ferrari or what have you. So I wanted a certain thing to happen that was very good for a person in my life. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is, is that... It depends. It depends if the outcome um, is something that you are clinging to. It also depends if the subject that you are wishing the good stuff to happen to is someone that you cling to. And I can't answer that. You know, I would just say look and see if there's clinging, or see if there's resistance. That's how you can measure not only your altitude. Okay, on the mountain, but it's also the way that you can actually feel ego's skin. When you feel resistance, right there, that's ego. So it's it's a it's a marvelous thing to work with. Outcomes, when we start, when this is one of the, one of the things where I, I sometimes get get the question, 
could you know if if I do guided meditation where I am um, I'm wishing for something to happen is that okay well sure that, that's fine but basically what you're doing is you're putting attention in the future instead of what's presently going on and you're clinging to an outcome which actually defines suffering so I would encourage go for it keep suffering because eventually what happens is you'll be tired of the suffering and that brings us into the now and anybody who's ever meditated with pain physical pain knows that physical pain brings them right into the now you cannot go you just have to deal with that intensity it's one of the gifts of physical pain in meditation it forces I am right here I am right now and man this is intense wow you know and the more we do that the more we recognize that pain is merely intensity that we're running from the minute we meet the pain fully the minute we let the pain the intensity fill us is the minute our relationship to it changes and then it's just intensity and you'll be amazed at how much intensity you can deal with especially when you're undefended especially when you don't have the down jacket you know whatever that means I went ethereal on you didn't I <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's okay you can wear it yeah but honestly the 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 attaching the clinging just watch for that in your life a truly generous person does not cling at all oh, tough one yeah yes young lady confused about something with, uh, having to do with the actual meditating. Mm -hmm. And um, I've read some books by Jack Cornfield, mm -hmm. and he talks about um, while meditating, it's possible to go into a type of altered state of consciousness. Yes. And um, so I, when, it's very, when I'm meditating at times and it's very quiet, I think it's my ego will all of a sudden like wait and expect this like altered state of consciousness so like here it comes there's something underneath the quiet <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Like, sort of waiting okay, right it's gonna happen now yeah <laughs> here we go here we go here we go wait wait here we go oh no damn <laughs> yeah, well you're not alone i think every one of us at some at some point in time in our practices has, has had the experience of <gasps> You know? So I guess the yeah. simple, short question is, is there something underneath the quiet? Mm. I mean, I'm confused about what he was talking about. Yeah, what's, what's underneath the stillness? Mm -hmm. Is that just experience it and find out for yourself? Yeah, I'm going to tell you to report back. Okay. <laughs> Literally, um, what is prior to the stillness? What is prior to time? What is prior to the self? Rest there. And we find that what is prior to the mind, what is prior to everything, what is prior to time, the minute we uncover the spaciousness between our thoughts and we don't do anything to it, we just rest in that space. And that space has this miraculous quality of 
lit, I, I use the, the verb burn. It burns away the stuff we don't need, which is maybe, it may sound violent or something, but it's, it, it, mel it melts away the stuff we don't need. Does one know when that's happening? The one falls away. So it's just not one who knows, it's just knowing with the capital K that happens. That's the best way I can describe it. The words kind of get in the way. But it is an experiential uh, event that we do, we, we, we honor it when we let go of it. Ego wants to pounce on it, right? Here it comes, here it comes, here Damn it. And that's exactly how we keep it from walking through the door, busting through the door. Instead, just be. And that can be really hard. It can be really hard, but it's much harder to keep infinity out on the other side of the door. Be well.